This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. Good morning. You're listening to Pressing Matters, the show where we go beyond the headlines and explore issues driving the press. I'm Philip C. Now, as we enter Earth Day, in today's show, I speak to Robin Hicks, Associate Editor of EcoBusiness. Based in Singapore, we get his perspective on greenwashing and how prevalent is it in Asia. You know, welcome, Robin. Just a basic one-on-one on greenwashing. It is essentially false, misleading or untrue actions or a set of claims made by an organization about the positive impact that a company, product or service has on the environment. But is this greenwashing a recent phenomenon? I'd say the idea of greenwashing companies, as you've explained, making exaggerated sustainability credentials has been around for pretty much 20 years, Mm. Um, I think. But it's only, I think you're right, that it's only in the last couple of years that has really seen an explosion of sustainability claims after COVID. COVID was really the tonic that made companies wake, wake up to the importance of ESG or environmental, social and governance issues and really tried to tap into them basically for a business opportunity, right? They saw sustainability as a way to win customers and also a way to show how responsible um, they are in a world that was was creaking, right? COVID really did provide a nudge in the ribs to companies that they need to start thinking about sustainability. Then they started making all these claims, but obviously, as you've explained, not all of them are truthful. And that's why some brands are running into trouble. I mean, that's why I'm quite keen to understand, right? This exaggeration of claims, it's motivated by just trying to win over the hearts of consumers. That's the real intention, isn't it? That that consumers now are interested in this theme. And that's why companies feel pressured to over-exaggerate or to distort their actual reality on the ground about what they do on the environmental side. Yeah, well, there's pretty much two types of uh, sources of greenwashing. The first usually is in finance. So in the, the finance sector has realized that there's lots of, lots of money to be made out of sustainability-linked um, funds. And so that's why a lot of, say, banks are, are, are packaging their investments, their portfolios as green when sometimes they aren't. And so that's the first bit. The second bit is the rest of us, consumers, the consumer sphere that who are exposed to companies increasingly trying to sell themselves as green. I guess that's the way it then becomes very interesting, right? Like for you, having had so much experience uh, observing this, right? When you see an advert, when you see a press release, can you sense and get a sense whether someone is greenwashing or not? Are you able to, you know, smell a rat when when someone, you know, is trying to over, over-exaggerate or over-expose themselves? Um, sometimes it's really tricky, but there's a there's a checklist of things to watch for to call it out. My favorite one is to look at the company structure of a, the, the company that is making a sustainability claim. Look at how they're structured. If the sustainability team is part in the same team as communications or marketing, that's usually a bit of a red flag to, to tell whether what a company is saying is, is genuine or not. Um, but there are other ways as well. Um, is the data credible? Pretty good ways to test if the data is reliable or, or seems a bit iffy. Look at the data. Um, also, if if a claim that a company is making is way outside of their field of expertise, say I don't know, PepsiCo started talking about human rights or something that they that isn't a, a routinely or regularly scrutinised part of their value chain. That's another way of looking at it. Yeah, another way is we you know we've got Earth Day coming up. 
if you see a flurry of brands just suddenly start talking about sustainability for one day mm-hmm. a year on Earth Day, that's mm-hmm. another massive flag, red flag, right? Because that yeah. obviously smacks of tokenism. Yeah, that's a very interesting point, you know. And I, I wonder out loud, that's why, right? It's also how you say the things, right? Because I hear so many things about, I'm the greenest this in my industry, I'm the greenest that. Those self-proclamations also do indicate a bit of exaggeration here of greenwashing when people talk more about the being rather than the doing? Yeah, no, absolutely. So if there's a disparity between the amount that a company talks about sustainability versus the amount they're actually doing about it, that's greenwash. There was a study a few months ago, actually, that compared everything that the big big five oil majors say about sustainability. So how many times they're talking about being green versus... Um, how much um, they're actually investing in renewable energy, so pivoting away from fossil fuels. And it showed a massive disparity between what they're saying and what they're actually doing, which again is is pretty much classic greenwash. I mean, when you give these examples, it feels very distant from Asia. Everything here seems to be what the Western multinationals are doing. Um, and not much is happening in this part of the region, Asia, Pacific, in terms of exposing, unearthing or challenging, you know, these claims here in Asia. Is it fair that, you know, it's very much Western-centric in, in, this, like, over, in this exposure? Yeah, I think that is fair. There's less calling out of brands. Um, in Asia than it is in the West, or that that may change. But um, I think, I slight hesitate when I say this, but I think that could be a slight cultural element to it. Um, mm. There was a chap that I interviewed re- uh, recently called Kim Schumacher, um, who's a professor of um, communications and ESG and an expert in, in greenwashing. He said that there's less of a tendency in some Asian cultures to want to call out greenwash because of that, I guess, conflict avoidance sensibility that certainly isn't that isn't that way in the West. You go to cultures like Australia, people love being more aggressive at calling out corporations. Yeah, yeah. And, and certainly we've seen that play out also in how policymakers, uh, legislators in the West versus Asia are tackling greenwash. So um, there's plenty of examples of lawmakers going after brands in the West. There's likes of Shell, um, the Dutch airline KLM, HSBC, the fast fashion brand H&M. They've been sued in parts of Europe and also the, the US for making bogus or exaggerated sustainability claims, right? Um, even in Germany, we've even seen the offices uh, of Deutsche Bank raided by police over um, greenwashing allegations mm. to do with their investments, right? We haven't seen any of that um, in Asia yet, although the, the, the toughest country um, to take action on greenwashing at the moment is South Korea. They recently announced they would fine companies for greenwashing, although the fine is pretty tiny. It's like 2,300 US dollars, which is like a, a night out in Seoul, isn't it? It's a good night out in Seoul for those big wigs that work at the fossil fuels companies uh, in Korea. So yeah, it is interesting, the disparity between action on greenwashing in the West versus Asia, for sure. So I have to I have to say, I don't disagree with you about how perhaps in this part of the world, culture is not confrontational, that we don't, uh, you know, explicitly say it. But I wonder if we silently protest through the wallet, whether when you see this, tar- this brand being tarnished, you know, globally, the, the, the audience here who's beginning to be global in nature also has this veneer and then slowly 
edges the way away away from this brand through not buying the products and services pattern yeah, changes. Yeah, you could you could well be right. Um, voting with your wallet, if you like, and and boycotting brands because they've they're greenwashed. I think that consumers do respond uh, quite strongly to greenwashing, right? I mean, because greenwashing, what is it basically? It's, it's hypocrisy, right? It's a brand saying one thing and doing the next. And I think consumers will take offense to that. Um, but whether or not at the checkout aisle, they'll, you know, they'll, they'll avoid a brand because it's been um, found out to be greenwashing. I'm not quite sure. What, one interesting thing about sustainability is that a lot of people will, if you ask them a question, say in a survey, and um, will you spend more on a product that is green or a service that is green? People always say yes. Um, but when it comes to paying for it, to paying a little bit more, there's usually that disparity and actually they won't. So I think the jury's out, right? We'll see if, if brands that are caught greenwashing, there have been a few examples in Asia, um, will it in any way affect them materially? Will it affect their business? Could it affect their share price if they're called out for it? I'm not convinced that it will yet, mm. but um, perhaps in a year or two, we'll see. And perhaps it's because it resonates with a different generation and the generation hasn't got that spending power. So, so much differentiation and distinction between millennials and Gen Zs, right? Perhaps millennials don't think too much about it, but one can assume or search perhaps that Gen Zs are a bit more socially aware, a bit more environmentally conscious, but because they haven't had the opportunity to earn an income, they haven't yet entered the market and doesn't have, don't have the influence power yet. Would it be fair to assume that you see some shifts at the younger generation? Yeah, I think, well, I think one uh, younger, greenwashing, as you mentioned, is a relatively new phenomenon to enter the mainstream, at least. It's only been sort of post-COVID 2019, 2020, it's been a, a noticeable problem. And I think, yeah, young people, millennials are, I'd say, more likely to call out a brand, um, say, in social media. And social media, interestingly, I think is is really the medium where you're going to see a lot of greenwashing called out. Whatever reason, some reasons we've discussed, I think the media in Asia is, well, some Asian countries is less likely to call out greenwashing than in the West. And so it's left to consumers, usually young consumers, to really leave at the front foot and take on greenwashing by making complaints, making comments in social media. I mean, the classic example was... 2021, where the Korean brand Innesfree, which makes sort of cosmetics and this face serum. So a consumer, you may remember it, cut open a bottle of Innesfree face serum, um, which, by the way, on the side of this bottle, it said, hello, I'm a paper bottle. And the consumer cut it open and revealed that there was a plastic lining inside this paper bottle. So it's classic greenwash. And it was a beautifully encapsulated problem and showed what consumers, young consumers can do in social media to expose companies for greenwash. Now we're heading into some messages, and when we come back, we continue our discussion with Robin from Eco Business. Stay tuned, BFM 89.9. Thanks for staying tuned to Pressing Matters on the Morning Run. Today on the show, we speak to Robin Hicks, Associate Editor of Eco Business on greenwashing in Asia. So Robin, earlier in the segment, I sensed the frustration, right, that greenwashing really isn't a priority. And perhaps the reality is that because we just have other bigger fish to fry, like corruption, social issues, labor rights, pollution in the rivers, right? 
Yeah, you know, the interesting point, I, I push back a little bit, though, on that idea that um, greenwashing or environmental issues aren't as important as social issues or, or governance issues like corruption. You know, if, you, if Asia's biggest companies, you know, the huge family-owned businesses that, that dominate the, the business scene in, in much of the region, if, if these companies do not transition um, to clean energy, if they don't clean up their act, and they don't genuinely do um, what they say they're going to do, which is this around greenwashing that the whole world will suffer right um because you know literally asia is where more than half of the emissions are coming from climate wrecking carbon emissions so yeah without genuine climate action in this region forget about the polar ice caps and so yeah i mean the, the most dangerous type of greenwashing that we've seen is i think around a um, net zero target so companies claiming that by 2050 they're going to cut emissions in line with the paris agreement on climate change i, I do think it's these targets need to be scrutinized a lot more than they are in this part of the world. So um, it's really important that these companies called out that are held to account that are, are put in line for what they're telling us. For whatever reason, they haven't been called out in this part of the world as much. Also pushing back on your point a little bit that corruption or social issues take precedent over a greenwashing. I think they, they are they are linked. Now, the idea of ESG, as I mentioned, environmental, social and governance issues. The G in ESG is about governance. And so that's linked very much to corruption and the way that companies are run. And the S um, is, is about social issues and social environmental issues are very much linked. So I think, yeah, it's calling out greenwash and holding companies accountable for what they're telling us is at least equally important as, as calling out corruption social issues. I think I, I get your point about, you know, companies making net zero commitments. So how does that work? Because there are countries all around the world that also have made net zero commitments, but they even haven't articulated their pathway. But at the same breath, we want people to make that commitment, even though they may not have clarity over the plans or maybe the plans they have to get there are not fully in place or the technology is not there. But don't you think you need to make these kind of commitments to perhaps drive some interest to, to get something going right? Sometimes you have to get the end state goals for people to be committed and interested to move towards that way, right? Yeah, yeah. I, I, yeah, I agree. Yeah, very much. I mean, net zero targets, it's still a target. It's still something that, that a, com a pledge that a company is making. And especially if you're a big business, sort of a, a business sector leading company that you pull other companies along with you and help help push the market towards decarbonization and, and making the right choices but the the issue is target is not credible like as you said that with a net zero target by 2050 you need to have interim targets you need to have steps along the way that show that you are making the right choices and trying to clean up your act your supply chain if not it's just a, a very thin target that doesn't mean much so yeah, it, it's great that lots of companies are making more commitments, but these commitments do have to come with, they have to be based on data. You have to set, for example, a baseline to know where your starting point is. And you have to be transparent about it. I think you have to communicate if you're not doing well, if you're not, if your emissions have actually gone up rather than down. And I think with greenwashing, the problem comes is when you don't communicate that or you go dark for whatever reason and you stop 
stop communicating and then you lose that transparency piece because with sustainability, accountability and transparency are really the starting point. And without those, yeah, you do walk oh. the tight the, mm. walk the tightrope of greenwashing. I think it's very interesting, right? So are you saying it's okay to say, hmm, okay, I want to get to net zero by 2050, but where I'm at is actually in a very difficult place. I'm not in a good place. I'm trying to do some stuff. I'm not sure whether I'll get there, but I want to get there by 2050. Is that okay as a communication? Because, you know, it's someone saying, I want to get there. I think that because it's a 25-year journey, that new technologies will come through. And, you know, over time, I will change my plans per se, but I know where I am now isn't in a great state or not in a great place. And I'm going to make baby steps. And I'm quite clear that trajectory isn't going to get me there. But over time, Time, I will repivot and all that. Is that an okay message then? Yeah, I mean, it's a difficult one. I mean, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm not a PR practitioner. I'm a, I'm a journalist, right? So I'm not quite sure on the, on the messaging. But there is a new term that I've heard used quite a bit, actually, by PR uh, professionals known as corporate vulnerability. It sounds sort of a bit of a cheesy term, but it's about yeah. basically firms being more honest um, in the context of sustainability. Yeah. Um, to be honest, I think... You could solve an awful amount, an awful lot of problems if you were more honest about the challenge that you face. And certainly consumers or even investors would probably be more forgiving of you if you were more honest. But I don't I haven't seen any companies, not even in, in the West, be that honest. Not not many brands be really brave and say, oh, this this target we've made is it's not realistic. We're not going to get there. We're having real problems. One example that I have seen is a, a big multinational, be slightly honest, is Unilever, where if you look on their website, it says their scope three emissions, which is that the emissions often way out of their control and their supply chain. Um, trying to control, for example, the temperature at which people take showers because yeah. that affects their scope three. They've admitted a bit that um, it's very difficult to get their consumers to reduce their scope three emissions. But there's very there's hardly any of this corporate vulnerability that we're we're seeing at the moment in the market. And perhaps that's a big opportunity for a brand, a new brand, a challenger brand, a brand that's shaping their communication strategy to, to think more seriously about being honest, about being more vulnerable. Yeah, and, and I think that's really interesting because I always wonder whether it's because corporates are afraid because they fear of the backlash, right, of demonstrating that you're lacking ambition or lacking courage when you show that vulnerability. I wonder if it's a tip for tat that corporates want to do it because they worry that the media will pounce on them for, for not lacking ambition or courage. At the same time, media is also frustrated with the lack of transparency from corporates. So both are losing in the same side. And as a result, you're getting this whole misalignment about and misinformation taking place. So is this an issue about both sides not trusting each other? While we know that there's a serious problem, but we are not tackling it holistically together. Yeah, you're absolutely right. There's the role of the media. I mean, as a journalist, to be honest, I, I love writing about greenwash. I think most journalists do, right? It's a fun issue. It's fun yeah. to call out companies. It's it, As far as the issue goes, which at its heart, I mentioned is um, hypocrisy. It's fun to report on that. But then you do get the phenomenon of companies retreating into their shells. They're like, right, I'm not going to talk about sustainability anymore if that's the sort of response I get from the media or the yeah. public. And that's a Because there's too much risk in saying things like this, right? That yeah. uh, you will have a risk of being attacked, so better not say anything at all. Yeah, and 
and that that's a very real phenomenon that's just emerged last year called green hush. So I guess mm. the opposite, you know, green hushing, where companies stop communicating their sustainability performance and progress because of the fear that they'll get called out for greenwashing. Mm. Now that can have serious consequences, right? Some companies would say, right, forget that. I'm I'm not. We're going to just disband our sustainability programs altogether because it's not worth our while. So yeah, yeah, I do think it's. It, you're right. It's, it is a trust trust issue that that corporates don't trust the likely response they'll get uh, from the media or consumers to their sustainability messaging, and so they go quiet, which is yeah, an absolute a genuine issue. And that's where it becomes very interesting. Right? If corporates green hush all of them collectively do it, then it's contingent on government then to take action, isn't it? And I guess then do do media then apply the same level of scrutiny that they do with corporates with governments, right? About government's commitments, then the reality checks that governments do or don't do, right? Many commit to net zero, but they don't face the same level of scrutiny that corporates do. Is that fair or not? I'm not sure, though, actually. Um, I think, just thinking about Singapore, where I'm based, which isn't a country famous for its press freedom, let's be honest. I think some of the media, I think, uh, to be honest, I think quite proud. My, my colleague, Liang Lei, has been, is reporting on, on net zero. It's been pretty critical of the Singapore government and its net zero targets and its sustainability progress. Uh, and I think, to be honest, to a certain extent, the government, even in countries like Singapore, which hasn't got great press freedom, they do welcome criticism as long as it's constructive, right? Um, I wouldn't say that corporations have had a tougher ride than governments necessarily. But yeah, that, that freedom to criticize sustainability commitments in the media in Southeast Asia, I'd say, is an issue. Um, my publication, The Eco Business, so we ran um, a training session for journalists um, who are covering sustainability, who are new to sustainability. Now, we had this se- segment on greenwashing, right? We did this segment, and then the feedback that we got afterwards from journalists who were, I won't mention the names of their masters, heads, but they worked in mainstream media. They said, oh, this this session isn't relevant to us because there's no way that we could even dream of calling out greenwashing of of big companies, especially if they're government linked. Mm. So yeah, it's a genuine issue of of the media feeling or self-censoring and hamstringing themselves to call out greenwashing. Um, Going back to the the potential cultural issue of how to deal with with greenwashing the media. That was Robin Hicks from Eco Business. This has been Pressing Matters on the Morning Run. Coming up next is the 10 a.m. News Bulletin, followed by Enterprise, BFM 89.9. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.